Good afternoon and good evening to everyone. My name is Dave Frankowski and I'll be your moderator for today's class. And welcome to another lecture given by the Oceanside California class. This is a school and not a church. Neither are we affiliated with any religious organization. This school is a nonprofit, non-denominational, religious and scientific research organization dedicated to showing proof of the existence of Yahweh our Elohim and the operation of his eternal purpose, pattern, and plan operating throughout eternity to this present day. The school was established as a result of a divine vision and revelation given unto our founder, Dr. Henry Clifford Kinley, in the state of Ohio in the year of 1931. We were incorporated in the state of California in the year of 1958, and we hold classes in the United States and in various other countries. The Oceanside class was established in 1994. At this time, I'd like to introduce to you the Dean of the Oceanside class, Dr. Dennis Volpe, and the President, Dr. Carl Emler. Now in this school, we use the true, correct, and original name and title for the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are contained in the original Hebrew text. The correct name for our Heavenly Father is Yahweh. It has been improperly substituted by Lord. The correct title for the Word or Son is Elohim. It has been improperly substituted by God and the correct name of the Holy Spirit manifested in or out of a physical body is Yahshua. It has been erroneously substituted by Jesus Christ. Lord and God are titles, they are not names. The Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 and 5 that there are Lord's many and there are God's many. But we now know that each Lord must have a name, and each God must have a name also. Elohim is a title, but unlike the titles of Lord and God, Elohim is a divine title. It's a divine title because it's the title that our Creator has chosen for Himself. Jesus is a name, but it is an erroneous name, and a minor investigation on your part into a good dictionary or encyclopedia would prove that neither the Hebrew, the Greek, nor the Latin languages have any letters or characters in their alphabet that would produce the sound that's made by the letter J. Neither was there a letter J in our own English language until some 1,400 years after the death of the Messiah, which would make such names as Jesus and Jehovah impossible renderings for the true name of our Father and His Son. Christ is a title just like Lord and God. Yahweh is pure spirit, and in this state is incomprehensible and inscrutable. He is the ultimate source, substance, the limits and bounds of everything that exists. We have Yahweh in his pure spirit state, symbolized on this chart as a cloud. Yahweh is not a cloud. He merely chose a cloud because a cloud has no particular or descriptive shape and form. And we've drawn this cloud to extend all around the edges of this chart to show 
that everything on the chart is within the cloud. In like manner, everything in the universe abides within the pure spirit state of Yahweh. Yahweh, knowing that man could not perceive of him in his pure spirit state, took on shape and took on form right within himself as Yahweh Elohim. This is the word or son, a super incorporeal being that is having the shape and form of a man, but without flesh and blood. This form can only be seen in divine visions and understood in divine revelations. Later on, this self-same spirit manifested himself in a physical body, and he walked the earth plane as Yahshua, the Messiah, who the whole world calls Jesus Christ. Now there's only one name given unto salvation, and we must know that name. So the simple yet intelligent question that we should ask ourselves is, what did they call the Savior when he walked the earth plane? A further understanding of this name and title may be had by reading the preface to the Holy Name Bible. Also in this school, we teach by the divine pattern of the universe. It's the divine pattern because it's Yahweh's pattern. After Yahweh led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he called Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and he showed him this threefold tabernacle pattern in a vision. Later on, Yahweh instructed Moses to build one in the wilderness of Sinai, exactly like the one he had seen in his vision on the mount. The tabernacle pattern is a threefold pattern consisting of a most holy place, a holy place, and a court roundabout. These three compartments make up the one tabernacle pattern. In this school, we show proof that everything in the universe is made and it operates according to the structure and the function of this threefold tabernacle pattern and that absolutely nothing escapes the pattern. The school has 10 primary constitutional objectives and aims, and they are as follows. One is to help you find and know Yahweh our Elohim as he really is and actually exists. Two, to form a nucleus of universal brotherhood of humanity in Yahshua the Messiah without distinction of race, nationality, creed, sex, caste, or color. Three, to investigate the unexplained spirit law or so-called law of nature and the powers latent in man. Four, to encourage and promote the study of the scriptures, comparative religions, psychology, philosophy, modern, practical, and occult science. Five, to extirpate current superstition, skepticism, and ignorance. Six, to learn, know, and understand the operation of Yahweh's eternal purpose through the dispensations and ages. Seven, to discern and avoid being deceived by Lucifer, the serpent, the devil, the dragon, or Satan and his demons, operating the mystery of iniquity on earth through the dispensations of time. Eight, to earnestly contend for the common salvation and faith, which was once delivered unto the sons or children of Yahweh. Nine, to make known that Yahweh, from the beginning ordained, 
There is no other name given among men whereby man can be saved, saving the name of Yahshua the Messiah. And 10, to inherit eternal life now in the kingdom of Yahshua the Messiah, with the hope of immortal glorification in the new earth state. Our watchword is peace, and our slogan is speak the truth. We'll begin this afternoon with a prayer by Dr. Chuck Marshall from our Tampa, Florida class. And we'll have a scripture read, which will be Matthew, the 18th chapter. And that'll be read by Dr. Sharon Welch from our Syracuse, New York class. Thank you. May we all bow our hearts and our minds unto Yahweh. And through Yahshua, let us pray that he keep us in these classes, keeps us in this knowledge and understanding of him. Give us the heart and the mind to accept these things and be humble. And we ask that, that he just keep us in class and, and provide the peace that we have enjoyed since we've come into this class. And to thank him for all he's given us. Keep us from getting involved in the carnality of this world and getting caught up in what the devil is doing and keep us out of harm's way. In Yahshua's name, let's all declare, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'll be reading Matthew, the 18th chapter from the King James Version, inserting the true names. At the time came the disciples unto Yahshua, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Yahshua called the little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted, and become as little ch children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little ch child in my name receive, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged upon his neck, and that he was drowned in the depth of the sea. And woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life hath, hath, uh, or, or remained rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. <clears throat> it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven 
their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, <clears throat> does he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiced more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall tr trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall, and if he shall neglect to hear them, Tell it unto the assembly, but if he neglects to hear the assembly, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a republican. Verily I say unto you, whosoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whosoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. <clears throat> then Peter, then came Peter to him and said, Master, how often? Shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Yahshua said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but unto seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants? And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owned him ten thousand talents. For as much as he had not paid, his lord master uh, commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the master of thy servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. 
and he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their master all that was done. Then his master, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thy wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldn't not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I have pity on thee? And his master was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one of his brother their trespasses. That was Matthew, the 18th chapter. Thank you, Dr. Welch and Dr. Marshall. Our scripture readers this afternoon will be Dr. Linda Volpe from our Oceanside, California class and Dr. Gail Josephson from our Green Bay, Wisconsin class. Speakers be advised, you will see a five minute sign on your screen. Please acknowledge when you've seen the sign. And for our first speaker this afternoon, we'd like to call Dr. Cherie Williams from our Orlando, Florida class. Good afternoon and good evening class. Good afternoon. It is always an honor and a privilege to have another opportunity to come and sit under this great divine vision and revelation that our Heavenly Father, Yahweh Elohim, through Yahshua the Messiah, did give our founder, Dr. Henry Clifford Kinley, in the year of 1931 in Springfield, Ohio. And due to the fact that he was obedient to the heavenly vision that he received and that he went forth and taught this vision and revelation to the people we are blessed to be in class this evening. Um, I'd like to start out in uh, John the 17th chapter. If you can get John 17 and 3. I always like to keep in the forefront of my mind and and um, the brethren mind whenever I am able to give a testimony as to the reason why we gather ourselves together. It's all about soul salvation. So, you know, I came up in Mount Moriah Baptist Church in Winter Park. I was Christian and reared up in that church for some 18 years. And um, I was led to believe that eternal life was to join the church and, you know, uh, eat the Lord's Supper, be baptized and whatnot. But we want to take the words of the Savior himself. And this is in John the 17th. John 17 and 3 is written in red. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, these are the words of the Savior himself, and he's going to declare what eternal life is. Go ahead. John 17 and 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true Elohim, and Yahshua the Messiah, whom thou hast sent. Okay. So eternal life is to know Yahweh our Elohim. And Yahshua the Messiah, whom thou hast sent. Now, if you're new in class, 
you may not be familiar with the name of Yahweh Elohim. Uh, in your King James Bible, it would say uh, the Lord God. But we've learned since being in class that Lord is a title, it's not a name. Uh, you have landlords. My daddy was a landlord, Mr. Rudolph Roundtree. Uh, you have uh, a character called the Lord of the Jungle. His name is Tarzan. <laughs> you know, so you know, Lord is a title. It's not a name. You have God, uh, such as in Greek mythology. We had to take a Greek mythology in high school to get an English credit in the United States of America. So you have you had to learn about Hercules and Athena and you name it, you know, these uh, Greek gods. Um, but each of the gods in, in Greek mythology, they all had names. You get what I'm saying? So Lord is a title, God is a title. And um, we've learned that the true and correct name is Yahweh, Elohim. Okay. Then you have uh, Jesus, which begun, begins with a J, but when you look at the fact that the savior of the world, he was not an Englishman. He was, he was not Greek. He was not Latin. He was a born Hebrew. And today, right now, this evening, there is no letter J in the Hebrew alphabet. So therefore, um, Jesus could not have been the name of the savior. Not back when he walked the uh, Palestine Hills and not even today because there is no J in Hebrew. Okay. So therefore his name could not be Jesus. Okay. Can we go to the name chart? Just real, I'm going to hit it real quick and we're moving on. Um, okay. The name chart. Okay. All right. So you see here in the cloud, this is Yahweh. Yah is masculine, way is feminine. Then you have Elohim. Then you have Yahshua. Now, Yahshua is the true name of the Savior, not Jesus. So you see in how that he has come in his father's name. That's John 5 and 43, written in red as well. He says, I am come, the Savior is saying, I am come in my father's name. So you see in the father is Yahweh and the son is Yahshua. So you see Yah and Yah, he's coming in his father's name, right? And that is not, a, you know, so unusual because you and I, we come in our father's name. They call it our surname. For instance, when my mom was carrying me, uh, they didn't know if I was a boy or a girl, but one thing they did know that I was going to be a round tree baby. Why so? Because I come in my father's name. So when I was born, they put that round tree uh, uh, tag on my on my wrist to make sure that they didn't mix me up with any other family, you know. So round tree is my surname. I come in my father's name. And so here you have the Savior. He's coming in his father's name, Yah and Yah. You see that? Okay. And then when you go to the table of contents, in the uh, even in the King James Bible, you find out that the prophets also come in the Father's name. For an example, you have Isaiah, you hear the Yah, Jeremiah, Yah, Zephaniah, 
Zachariah. You get what I mean? Even you have E-L, see Elohim? You have Daniel, Samuel. You see, now this school didn't name those prophets. And we didn't put those names in the Bible. But nevertheless, they're in there and they're a witness to the true and correct name of Yahweh, Elohim, and Yahshua. Okay, now we're moving on. All right. So now, if you can get for me, um, I, I'm very uh, sensitive to hearing about having high school members in class because I was a senior in high school when I first came to class. I was 18 years old. And so I remember when I go back in my mind, my state and condition in my heart and mind when I came to my very first class, and I know what grabbed me and held me, even back then as a young person, even till now as an older person, as a, I'm a grandma now. <laughs> so get for me, uh, let's get um, Matthews 24 and 14. We're going to do it again. Can't do it too much. The gospel of uh, Yahshua the Messiah. So John, I mean, Matthew 24, 14. And let's get 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, please. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel mm -hmm. of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. All right. So now this is written in red again, right? It says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, okay? These are the words of the Savior. So then the question will be, well, what is the gospel then? Because in my church, it said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. But we want to take the words of the Savior himself, the words of the Holy Spirit, by the way, who is the teacher in this school? Yahshua the Messiah is the teacher in this school. See, that's John 14, 26. Okay, let's get 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preach. Okay, so, hold it. so see, now he's going to declare unto us the gospel. So we want to know what it is. Okay, go ahead. Which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. Wow, you could be saved in the gospel. That's all we want to be is saved, right? At the end of the day, we just want to be saved. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Two, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Yahshua died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. All right. So now here it is. The Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul is declaring that the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah, according to the scriptures. Now, I didn't know what the scriptures were when I first came to class. Now we read over there in Isaiah 8 and 20, it says, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no law in them. Okay. And the law and the prophets are the scriptures. Okay. The law consists of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The accredited writer being Moses. That is the law. 
then your prophecy is from Joshua, truly Joshua to Malachi, the next 34 books. Okay, so you have five books of the law and 34 books of the prophecy, making 39 books. The first 39 books of your Bible. The world calls that the Old Testament part of the Bible. Those are the scriptures, the law and the prophets. Those are books that the religious world refused to use. Okay. But the gospel is how he died, how he was buried, how he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures or according to the Old Testament part of our Bible. So not only is the gospel declared in our Bible, but the gospel is also declared in the creation. Give me Romans 119 and 20, please. And this is what, what really captured me as an 18-year-old new person in class. Romans 1 and 19. Because that which may be known of Yahweh is manifest in them, for Yahweh hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All right. So we already read where the Savior of the world said eternal life is to know our Heavenly Father, Yahweh Elohim, and Yahshua the Messiah whom he sent. Right? And now here the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul then. Uh, because that which may be known. So eternal life is to know. And here, because that which may be known of Yahweh is manifest in us. For Yahweh has shown it unto us. For the invisible things of him, seeing that God or Yahweh is pure spirit and spirit is invisible. For the invisible things of him right from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and supernal nature so that or Godhead so that we are left without an excuse. So in other words, when you condense that scripture, we can take the natural things of this world, examine those things, and it would teach us something about our invisible creator and our invisible savior. Yahshua the Messiah. Okay, so let's do that. Let's see if we can find, uh, study something in the creation that will teach us about the gospel of the kingdom that we just read about, being the death, burial, and resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah. Now, from a natural standpoint, in order for us to live, we have to eat, right? So when you eat, you are pre uh, Bearing a witness to the gospel of Yahshua the Messiah. So someone would be saying, scratching their head, how is that? Well, we don't go around eating live chicken or live cow, do we? We don't run out there in the field, you know, and crunch down on live egg rooting around in, 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 in the pen, right? No, that animal has to die. Proving, let's get the big kernel artness chart so we can see him on the cross there. We can look at that to keep that as a focal point as to what we're trying to bring out here. The kernel artness chart. We're seeing Yahshua on the cross there, uh, where he, he died on the cross. So the gospel is how he died, how he was buried, and how he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So when we eat, uh, whether it's fish whether it's a pig, whether it's a cow, you know, 
whatever it is, it's a chicken. That um, animal had to give up its life in order for us to have that as a meal, right? Whether it's a T-bone steak or pork chop or, or, or um, what have you, salmon, whatever you like to eat. It had to die. And then the, the vegetables also, whether it's steamed broccoli or it's a baked potato, when you pull it up from its life source, it, 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 it dies. You know what I mean? Uh, you pull up those greens, you pull it up from the ground, then it begins to die. You get what I mean? So you prepare that meal and you sit down and you eat your meal, right? So that cow that was mooing in the field, it's not mooing no more because now it's a T-bone steak. And you eat that T-bone steak with your broccoli and your baked potato. You know what I'm saying? So that that cow that gave up its life now is buried in your body, but the nutrients resurrect throughout your body, giving you health, strength, and life. And you know what they say in the world, you are what you eat. You get what I'm talking about? So that's just proving that he did die. He was buried in Joseph's new tomb, but he resurrected again the third day according to the scriptures. And it's manifest every time you sit down and eat, whether it's breakfast, whether it's lunch or whether it's dinner, something had to give up its life in order for us to live from a natural standpoint because we must eat to live. Not only that, when we go to sleep at night, it's also a witness to the gospel of Yahshua the Messiah because scientists say that sleep is the closest state to death because when you're asleep, you don't hear anything, you don't see anything, you're not aware of anything around you. Someone might pop by uh, a, a surprise visit to visit you, but you, you went to bed early because you had a rough day. Somebody said, I just came to see Cherie. Well, honey, she is dead to the world. You know what I mean? And we make those statements unconsciously, not knowing what we're saying, you know? And so you're asleep. You're in a death state. You're buried under your covers, but you plan to resurrect or to get up the next day, right? So when you go to sleep, that's a witness to the gospel of Yahshua Messiah, proving that he did die, he was buried, and he resurrected again the third day, according to the scriptures. Also, when you look at the sun out there in the sky, the S-U-N sun is pointing to the S-O-N sun of Yahweh. Every single night, the sun goes down behind horizon, and, you know, I'm showing my age a little bit. In the papers, it says, you know, sunset at such and such a time, you know, and then the next day, sunrise, such and such a time. You get what I mean? But that S-U-N is pointing to the S-O-N, son of Yahweh. It goes down into a death state and it's buried behind the horizon, right? That's a death and a burial, proving that he did die. He was buried. But early the next morning, that sun resurrects right on time, you see, because he resurrected from the grave and then it ascends to his dinner at 12 noon and when that sun is straight up and down you don't have no shadows you can't see any shadows and that's the whole prince we're now not going there but this is proving that he did die he was buried but he resurrected again the third day according to the scriptures this rising and setting of the sun is a witness then you take the seasons of the year right in the fall the earth is going into a depth state. The sap that's in the trees go down into the earth, 
right? And the leaves change colors. It's so beautiful, right? But it's going into a death state in the fall. Then in the wintertime, especially up north, you have the snow and the ice that buries the sleeping or dead earth. So the earth is in a death state. It's buried in the snow and ice. But then in the springtime, uh, the sun warms up Mother Earth and the snow and ice melts and rolls back from the face of the earth and the seed of vegetation come forth, right? So whereas that tree that was naked, right? It had no leaves on it. It looked like it was dead. And by the way, the branches on that tree is making the letter Y, proving Yahweh made it. But then in the springtime, the pretty green leaves come back on that tree. You get what I'm talking about? Because now the earth is going into a, a resurrection in the springtime. The brown grass that looked like it was dead is green now. The flower beds and stuff, or maybe you went and planted some new ones. You know, it's beautiful now. You have the flowers blooming and, and, and what have you. And your, your animals are all having their, their young in the springtime, right? That's showing forth the resurrection. So you have death in the fall burial in the winter, resurrection in the spring, and in the summertime, you have fruition, which is typified to a ascension. Now, you can reach up on that tree, you can get that fruit, such as an orange or a tangerine, a grapefruit, a pear, you name it, off of the vine, your grapes, whatever. Now, it's fruition in the summertime. So, you got death in the fall, burial in the winter, resurrection in the spring, and then ascension in the summertime, right? Beautiful witnesses of the gospel of Yahshua the Messiah. So everything in life, everywhere you look, you see the gospel of Yahshua the Messiah. Now you can't even get your fruits and vegetables without testifying to the gospel of Yahshua the Messiah. Because what does the farmer have to do? In order for you to get those greens, those peas, those carrots, you know, uh, uh, that celery, that uh, uh, lettuce, that tomato, whatever it is, and you might even be a vegetarian. You know what I'm saying? Listen, that farmer has to take that dormant or dead seed. And what does he have to do? He has to dig a hole and he got to bury that dormant or dead seed, proving that he did die and he was buried. But over a process of time, then you get an increase or a resurrection, right? So that seed, for instance, maybe it's a tomato uh, plant that you planted and you, you you take that seed, you bury it and over time it resurrects. Now you go out there and pluck that tomato off of that vine. You know, those collard greens or those mustard greens out of the earth, those green peas, those string beans, whatever it is, it all, all of them be gone as a seed that's dead or dormant. And you bury it in the ground, proving that he did die, he was buried and he resurrected. Again, the third day, according to the scripture. So now you can't get the fruits and vegetables without that farmer testifying to a death, a burial, and a resurrection. So these are the things that grabbed me as a young person, being a senior in high school when I came to class at 18 years old. I could deal with that. I was like, wow, because I couldn't deny the rising and setting of the sun. I couldn't deny that I went to sleep every night. I couldn't deny that I ate food every single day. I couldn't deny those things. You know what I mean? So it grabbed me. I was like, wow, now this is deep. 
You know what I'm saying? Let's go to the man tabernacle uh, chart real quick. Here's another beautiful, beautiful principle. Yes, the man tabernacle. Yes, there we are. Now look at this. Now this structure on the left-hand side of this chart, this is called a tabernacle pattern, okay? And this tabernacle pattern was uh, reared up by Moses and the children of Israel some 3,500 years ago in the wilderness of Sinai. You, everybody knows about Cease to Be the Mill uh, movie, The Ten Commandments, when the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt. They play that movie every uh, Easter season. And they built this tabernacle. I don't think they really showed it in that movie there. But anyway, uh, in the wilderness there. Now, this tabernacle pattern, it is a most holy place, a holy place, and a court roundabout. There's three compartments to this pattern. But it's only one tabernacle pattern. This is proven that Yahweh, Elohim, and Yahweh, and these three are one. Or the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, when you look at the human being, the physical body, then this tabernacle is snapping our picture, right? We are a head cavity, a chest cavity, and a abdominal cavity. Three parts of the physical body but only one physical body proving Yahweh, Elohim, Yahshua, and these three are one, or the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. See, so it's snapping our picture. Now, when you look at the arm here, you have an upper arm, a lower arm, and a hand. There's three parts to that arm, but only one arm. Proving the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. See, he is a unity. He is not a trinity. The word trinity, what my preacher taught me in my church, it's not even in the scriptures. From Genesis 1-1, clear over to Revelation 22 last. You can't find trinity in the Bible, but you will find unity in the Bible. Because you read over there, and I think it's Deuteronomy 6 and 4. It says, here, and write it down. You can read it later. Here, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim is Yahweh a unity. Then you go to Zechariah 14 and 9. It says, Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. And in that day, he will prove to be a unity and with one name. Then you go on over to uh, St. John 17. Uh, I think it's 21. Why don't you pick that one up? Because I can't quote that one by heart. That's uh, uh, John 17. And 21, I believe it is, talking about uh, making the sons one or the brethren one as he and his father is one. Do you see it there, uh, Dr. Bopi, Dr. Linda Bopi? 17. Yeah, I think I have it. Okay. Um, John 17 and 21. That day, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Absolutely. Okay. So he's praying that the brethren be one as he and his father are one. And then we read also in 1 John 5 and 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So I just want to show you law of prophecy fulfillment, reality, how that he's a unity, he's not a trinity. So we were looking at the arm being three, yet one. Then when you look at your leg, you have a thigh, a calf, and a foot. 
three parts to that leg, but it's only one leg. Proven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. Or Yahweh, Elohim, Yahshua, these three are one, right? So now we're walking on the earth plane, and we learn this in school, in high school, that the earth is a crust, a mantle, and a core. Three parts to the earth, but it's only one earth, okay? Um, you also, let's go back to the ear. Let's look at your ear, right? You have the outer ear the middle ear, and the inner ear. There's three parts to your ear, but it's only one ear, proving the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. The same thing with your face. There's three organs on your face. You have eyes, nose, mouth. Three parts, uh, three organs on your face, but it's only one face, proving Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, these three are one. Or the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. Now, when you go to the green chart, can we go to the green chart for a moment? See, science is what grabbed me when I first came to class. Okay, so you're looking at the um, the basic building block. Okay, I see the five minutes. Thank you. The basic building block of matter is called an atom. And we learn in science in school, right? The atom is a proton, a neutron, electron. There's three parts to the atom, but there's only one atom. Proven Yahweh, Elohim, Yahshua, these three are one. Or the Father, the Word, and Holy Spirit, these three are one. He's a unity. He's not a trinity. You take the living cell. It's a, uh, uh, the living cell is a, uh, um, a cell. Help me out, Claire. Mm -mm, the living cell. The living cell, cell is a cell. Nucleus. A nucleus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A nucleus, a nucleolus, and a cell body. Thank you very much, Dr. Bobby. Yes, three parts to the living cell, only one cell. Proven the Father, the Word, and Holy Spirit. These three are one. You even let's look at that tree again. See this tree here? You have a root system, you have the trunk, and you have the branches. Three parts to that tree, but only one tree. Proven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. Or Yahweh, Elohim, Yahshua, these three are one. These are some of the uh, basic principles in this class that we learn about. That's teaching us about our invisible creator. You see, it says here, philoprogenitiveness. Listen, Yahweh brought forth this whole creation. You see, to teach us as a schoolmaster, you know, how they sometimes we have to have tutors in school to help us out in a subject that we're struggling with a little bit, you know. Well, this whole creation is like a toolmaster, a schoolmaster to teach us about our invisible creator and savior. You get what I'm talking about? So now you see in here on the screen chart, look at this uh, vertebra here. Uh on the back, see it says 33 vertebra. Now, the Savior of the world, he walked the face of the earth for some 33 years. And that's why you have 33 vertebrae in your back. That gives you your uprightness because he walked around for 33 years. We are witness to those things written in the Bible. Look at your ribs here. You have 12 ribs on one side. And then you have 12 ribs on the other side. That's 24. What is that talking about? That's the, 20, that's the 12 tribes of Israel back there in the Old Testament. And then you have the, the 12 apostles after the day of Pentecost. 
and they're gathered around as the throne. You read about in Revelations. You see, so we're walking testimony to these things. And, and see this pattern here? We're looking at the pattern here. Uh, there are seven steps in this pattern. You have the gate is one, the, uh, um, the altar of sacrifice is two, the labor is three, the door is four, the holy place is five, the second veil is six, and the uh, most holy place is seven. There are seven steps in the pattern. Guess what? On that green chart, you have seven stages to the man. You have seven wonders of the world. You have seven seeds. You get what I mean? It's wonderful the things that we learn in this class. So I, I'm out of time. I hope that that I was able to share a few things that grabbed me as a young person when I first came to class in 1977. And I hope these things grab you to make you say, hmm, that's interesting. I want to hear more and come back and study with us. And remember, at the end of the day, Yahshua the Messiah in us is our only hope of glory. All praises and honor go to Yahweh our Elohim, through Yahshua the Messiah, our Savior. Hallelujah. Thank you, Dr. Williams. And for our next speaker this afternoon, we'd like to call on the Dean of our Lansing, Michigan class, Dr. Terry Welsh. Well, good evening, brethren. Can you hear me okay? We can. Good evening. Well, wonderful. Good evening. That was a refreshing testimony to hear. I enjoyed that, and I hope others did too. Um, glad to be with you, and uh, glad to know that brethren like you are, well, holding down the fort's the expression that comes to mind, but actually basically just preaching the gospel in all the world, because that is exactly what Joshua wants to have done, and uh that is his business, uh, which once it's completed, all of us can go home. <laughs> and that will be a wonderful thing to look forward to going into a glorification in the next age in spiritual bodies that are uh, glorified and uh, uh, don't have any of the frailties and problems of these physical shells that are getting older and older every day. <laughs> so in any case, um, there is a one particular thing on my mind, but I'm happy always to share some things about Yahshua the Messiah. And I guess I probably should mention if anybody's interested uh, that um, here in Lansing, we did, I think it was three classes here in the past couple of weeks, uh, nothing this past week, but maybe a couple of weeks before that, three classes on uh, the tabernacle pattern with the dimensions and the numbers in that pattern and what those symbolize in Yahweh's purpose. You know, Yahweh is extremely precise about everything that he has patterned out it's detailed and uh, the tabernacle is made with specific dimensions and numbers uh that help us and i and i guess i can go into a little bit of that uh you know for the time that we have here and although um it's probably going to be kind of hard to show it i like 
for you to for people to be able to visualize this. And we use in Lansing a couple of uh, charts, including you know we've got in the uh, website there is a there's a couple of drawings that show more or less a scale type diagram of the dimensions in the tabernacle, but we've got one in class that is literally drawn to scale. And it's helpful to view that alongside pictures like the tabernacle on the uh, uh, tabernacle of man chart or the physical body chart. And to be able to do some comparisons that way kind of gives you a pretty good feel as to the way Yahweh had things designed. And I, and I think it kind of helps me, at least, in terms of understanding how Yahweh has uh, put some things together. Now, since you've got that chart there, we'll mention just a few things about it. Um, and, and maybe you can uh, use a pointer, possibly, or a... Uh, but point, yeah, there you go. Okay, so first of all, would you please point from the very back of the tabernacle to the very front? From the back, and I'm talking about the court, the back courtyard to the very front where the gate is. That distance right there is 150 feet. It's shown in the Bible as 100, um, um, my brain is going, um, <laughs> the units of measure that are shown in the Bible, um, cubits, cubits. And uh, a cubit is basically a foot and a half or 18 inches. So if it's 100 cubits, uh, it would be 150 feet. Okay, And then the width of the tabernacle, and I'm talking about the courtyard again, the court round about that width, is half of the length, which is 75 feet, of course. And um, so uh, that would mean that actually what you have with the structure there from corner to corner is three sections of 75 feet. One section that is two 75-foot distances put together, and the other with a single 75-foot distance and if I recall correctly, that comparison of that uh, uh, two to one uh, um, dimensional structure on something is called phi. And somebody else can deal with what phi means and why it's an important number or uh, proportion. But in any case, um, Everything that Yahweh does is threefold. And, and I'm talking about in every single way, you'll find threefoldness, 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 because everything Yahweh made is representing him in some way, uh, you know, either great or small. Each, each portion uh, of everything is, is a little piece of expression about who Yahweh is. So if you had the 375s, that would be three parts. And then 
Ah, and Amir Coleman says he just sent the chart dimensions in the chat. That's great. And uh, um, so anyway, then if you look at that distance of 150 feet from front to back, and you figure everything is threefold, you just divide that by three, and that would be three of 50. And so if you would now take your pointer and go from the back of, of the court to the second veil, which is uh, the dividing line, yep, for that's where the second veil is, and from that back courtyard to the second veil, I'm not talking about the back wall of the building. I'm talking about the back um, uh, of the courtyard, that white area, to the second veil. Now, that would be, right, from there to the second veil would be 50 feet, which, of course, is one-third of the 150 feet. And that second veil then uh, is placed on that line so that everything is going to be threefold in the tabernacle. And so you have 50 feet to the second veil, and of course you have twice 50 feet coming back clear to the gate. So that would be like three fifties, three, three of 50. Now, then you take the uh, uh, holy place and most holy place together, or that sometimes is actually referred to as the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the court. But that's basically, it's a two-room house. It's basically a two-room covered house. It was covered on top with skins and coverings. And, of course, the courtyard was open, or the court roundabout did not have a ceiling or, or covering. And so that two-room house section is actually 45 feet long from the back wall of the most holy place to the door. Yep, you got it. Exactly right. And that would mean then that the that is divided up in three parts of 15 feet. It's 15 feet from the back wall to the second veil. And then twice 15 feet from the second veil to the door. And so that total together would be 15 plus 30, and that's 45 feet. So again, you're seeing a threefoldness there. Um, and uh, then actually, if you look at that middle compartment, the holy place, there are vessels at two uh, levels there uh, or two uh, distances and the um, altar of incense is one third of the way from the second veil to the door so that's that section is 30 feet and one third of 30 would be 10 feet so that's 10 feet from the second veil to that altar of incense. And of course, then it's another 10 feet from there to the line where the lampstand or candlestick, if you wish, and uh, table of shoebread are. So that's 10 from the uh, second veil to the altar, 10 from the altar to that line with those 
two vessels, and then 10 more feet to the door, again, divided up in threefoldness. It's three sections of 10 feet. And then it, that leaves from the door all the way to the gate a total of 70 feet. Now, if you divided 70 by 3 exactly, it would be 23 and one-third, which in practical terms would be very difficult to measure. You can always estimate a third, but it's very difficult to actually do a precise measurement of one-third of any distance. And uh, But the way Yahweh had that was that the priest was anointed at the beginning of his ministry at the door. And think about this. If the priest is standing at the door, okay, he takes up a distance. And how many feet does a priest's feet take up? Well, if he's standing with the two feet beside each other, he's just taking up one foot, or the feet, the, his foot is taking up one foot distance out of the 70. And so that leaves 69 feet in addition to the 70th foot where the priest is. And those 69 feet are divided in three segments from the door to the, uh, or from the priest at the door to the um, um, brazen laver. Uh, that would be 23 feet, which is one third of 69. 23 more feet from the laver to the altar of sacrifice, and then 23 feet from there down to the gate. Okay, And um, we, I, we probably won't get a chance to get into it, but that way of dividing up 70 feet is exactly the way that Yahweh had Daniel divided up in the 70 weeks of years that he prophesied about in Daniel the ninth chapter. When Yahweh Elohim showed him that vision, he talked about 70 weeks being determined upon Daniel's people and the holy city to do six different things. And um, there would be 69 weeks until you had the Messiah come in. And he, when he came in, he would be cut off uh, without a successor in the midst of the 70th week, and then he would fulfill, Yahshua is, this, is the real priest. He's standing, Yahshua is standing in the 70th week. His ministry was in that 70th week of Daniel, and in the midst of that week, he was cut off, uh, and then uh, he completed that 70th week uh, and, and took it right over into the end. So we'll get into that maybe if we have a chance. We probably won't, but that's okay. I just want to mention it so that you can see that this tabernacle pattern with the numbers is something really worth learning about because, uh, well, if you read in Luke 1152, uh, Yahshua refers to the key of knowledge and this Tabernacle pattern is the key to knowing how Yahweh has put things together. In fact, you're welcome to get Luke 11.52. And while you're getting that, I'll mention that Dr. Kinley said it was the loss, or had it written, 
uh, in the textbook that it was the loss of this pattern or the knowledge of this pattern that caused all kinds of errors that were grievous errors and 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 transgressions against Yahweh. For example, it even was that that uh, made the uh, King Saul consult the witch of Endor, which was completely contrary to what Yahweh had said not to, because he told him not to go to familiar spirits and witches and so forth. And Saul had prior to that time uh, actually been cleaning up Israel from those witches and so forth. But because Saul didn't know what Yahweh was going to do, he, and, and he didn't know because he didn't understand this pattern, and Saul was afraid, he ended up, uh, well, I guess what most people would call panicking. It doesn't say that in the Bible. But he ended up being moved to go consult a witch in order to try to conjure up Samuel, his spirit, and, and give him uh, a prophecy or an answer uh, about what was going to happen. And uh, so this pattern is the key of knowledge. If you have a Luke 11.52, that it'd be great if you'd read it. Yep. If you yeah, don't, well, that's okay. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. Mm-hmm. And those lawyers that he's referring to there are the people that were supposed to be teachers of Yahweh's law, the law and the prophets. They were supposed to be the experts that others could depend on and go to to get instruction in the things that Yahweh put in the law, such as this tabernacle pattern. And they had taken it away. They had... Uh, just discarded it and uh, wouldn't use it properly, and they, they they actually discouraged other people from doing it. Um, that's really the same thing in principle as uh, what you read about back there with uh, uh, Moses' time and, and others before Moses, putting a rock on a well of water. Water was a scarce, precious commodity necessary for life. And they would seal up their wells and, and put a big rock on the mouth of a well to prevent others from getting into that well. And, uh, and Yahshua is the one that had to get those shepherds well, Moses back there is the type and shadow of Yahshua. He is the one that had to help the women to uh, get to the water, water their flock because the shepherds were blocking them. And you read about other situations where they had put stones on the mouth of a well and someone had to come along and take it off for them. In any case, um, this water is necessary for life. And the knowledge of the tabernacle pattern is necessary for eternal life or for the knowledge of Yahshua to really have eternal life. Because this is what really tells you about Yahweh and his purpose, exactly how he's operating his purpose. So 
these lawyers had taken away this key of knowledge. They didn't enter in to the knowledge themselves, and they would hinder other people from doing so. And you find folks doing the same thing today uh, in various different forms. Uh, basically, uh, they're dumb, and they're trying to keep other people dumb or misled, I should say, so, so that uh, people don't know what to do about something, and they're powerless, and they're dependent upon these other people. It's, a, it's always a power grab. Okay? In any case, this tabernacle pattern, if you understand it, does give you a freedom. It gives you the freedom to know and have faith in and depend upon Yahshua to do things in exactly the way that he has pre-planned by this pattern. Okay, so threefoldness in the pattern. Three compartments, and then the whole length of it, three groups of 50. The, uh, the sanctuary area, the most holy and holy together, would be like three sections of 15 feet long. And then the court roundabout would be like three sections of 23 feet and the 70th foot with the priest. And there's some other threefoldnesses in here that could be mentioned, certainly. Um, but that gives you an idea of just the dimensions, the basic dimensions of the tabernacle. Uh, now, um, I covered some other things in the class. Um, I, I guess one of the things that I'd like to do here is just some basic, just some basic information as to how things are structured. If you now go and look at the way the services in the tabernacle were performed, the priest had to go in every day through the gate and do the uh, daily sacrifices in the court roundabout. He would have to then, after he begins that operation in the court roundabout, go into the holy place and complete the operations there in the holy place. And he would then come back out and do an evening service uh, in the court roundabout. So there was two services each day. Uh, and so that would mean there was also two times of major sacrifice each day. We call it the morning offering or morning sacrifice in the evening offering or the evening sacrifice. And that would roughly uh, be uh, occurring at 9 a.m. for the morning sacrifice and 3 p.m. for the evening sacrifice. And certain things occurred during each of those times. Now, um, I, well, there's another threefoldness I probably should mention before I forget about it. You have dividing veils in there, and we shouldn't forget the dividing veils. Uh, Dr. Kinley talks a lot about the veils uh, frequently, and those veils have three colors. Surprise, another three. And those colors were blue and purple and scarlet. Now, blue is a high-frequency color. Um, the light that is given or emitted blue is a higher frequency than the uh, red or purple. And um, the high energy or high frequency color blue is also like the color of the sky. And so the blue represents heaven. 
And then the red, of course, is like the color of blood. And that is blood Yahweh required to be poured out upon the earth. And so the then the purple, uh, if you mix um, uh, dyes or inks or, or pigments together, uh, red uh, pigment and blue pigment blended together gives purple. So purple is the in-between. It's a transition color. And this is, each veil is showing a transition from one state to the next or one place to the next. But it rep each of these places in the physical tabernacle represents a state in uh, the creation that Yahweh has. The most holy place represents heaven or the spiritual high eternity state. The holy place represents an intermediate state and condition. And then the court roundabout represents the earth, the lower state and condition. So going uh, through the veil in each case, each, each one of these dividing veils would be like going from one state or level to another state or level. And if you're coming down from the most holy place into the holy place and going through a blue and purple and scarlet veil, that would be a symbol of coming down from heaven uh, and abstraction in eternity, or the third heaven, it's called, because there's the third heaven, the second heaven, and the first heaven, and the most holy place would compare to the third heaven, the holy place to the second heaven, the court roundabout to the first heaven. And so if you're coming down from the most holy place through that blue, purple, and scarlet veil, that's like coming from the third heaven to the second heaven or from eternity into shape and form. And then if you're coming from that holy place down into the court roundabout, you come through another blue, purple, and scarlet veil, and that would show a transition or a movement from incorporealization, shape and form, without a body, without a physical body, into the physical or material or tangible physical world. And so the priest then is representing Yahshua, the Messiah, and he is going to be the one that is a, a symbol of Yahshua, who's the mediator between Yahweh and man, and the priest is going to uh, advocate for or work on behalf of uh, reconciling mankind to Yahweh. In this case, because it's under the Old Testament and the covenant was between Yahweh and the children of Israel, this priest is a Levitical priest. He's of a, a tribe of Levi, specifically an Israelite, and uh, he is going to uh, uh, be a go-between in type and shadow between the sinners, which are the people of Israel, because they always sinned, and he is going to then atone for their sin uh, with services in the tabernacle and then perform um, uh, services to uh, glorify and honor and serve Yahweh who is sitting on the throne or the Ark of the Covenant. 
in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And so he's a symbol of Yahshua, the Messiah. Yahshua came from heaven to earth. Okay, That would be like when the priest would come back from the Day of Atonement, come back out of the most holy place, all the way through the holy place, and then down into the court roundabout to where uh, he was uh, offering for the people. And that would be like Yahshua the Messiah coming from heaven to earth. And then just like the priest would offer sacrifices there in the court roundabout of the tabernacle, that would be like Yahshua in the physical earth offering himself as a sacrifice for all of mankind. So Yahweh's using this tabernacle pattern as a type, a shadow, an allegory, a, a kind of a miniature example of uh, how Yahweh is operating the entire universe. And so now when you look at the altar, uh, oh, let me do this. I'm sorry, I got to do a little more on the threefoldness. There are three main vessels or instruments in each of the three compartments of the tabernacle. Again, um, if you go to the most holy place, there are three vessels there. Now, the way they are written about in the Bible, which I know is a little different than the way sometimes people repeat this, but if you go into Exodus, and I think you'll find it in the 25th chapter, we could look it up. Someone probably knows exactly where it is. I don't have this sitting in front of me right now. But if you look it up, you'll find out Yahweh talks about what they should make and what they're to make are three things. And one is the cherubim, which is the two archangels as you see them there, the, the cherubim of gold. And then they're to make a mercy seat for the ark, which actually forms the lid of the ark in the end, but it's the seat on which Yahweh would sit, and this whole thing will become his throne. And then there is the box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was an ark of wood overlaid with gold. So there was the cherubim, the mercy seat, and the ark. And they were made as three items, but when they were all finished and put together, they were uh, made into a single unit. The cherubim of gold were fashioned right into the end, uh, each end of the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was then literally placed on the ark as the lid of the ark so that the three items, cherubim, seat, ark, became one. And this is a symbol in the tabernacle showing that in heaven, which the most holy place represents, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And that's not a trinity. I, I, I want to mention something real quick. Um, Yahweh is not three in one. A lot of times, you know, there's a real tendency to use an expression three in one because it's become very common in our language to use something as three in one. There are a lot of things that are three in one, but Yahweh is not three in one. 
In fact, Yahweh is not three. Yahweh is one. He is one spirit existing in three states. So technically, he is one in three, not three in one. And there is a difference uh, in uh, what that means. Um, Yahweh is not three persons in one Godhead. Oh, five minutes. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, he's not three persons put together as one Godhead. He is one spirit that is existing concomitantly in three states. Um, all right, now going back to the tabernacle a little bit. So there's three vessels in the most holy place, but they're made one. There are three in the holy place, the altar of incense, lampstand, and table of shoebread. That's three. And then there are three in the court roundabout, which are the uh, altar of sacrifice, the brazen laver for washing, and the holy anointing oil, which was in probably a horn uh, instead of a cup. Sometimes we call it a cup, but it was a vessel that held the holy anointing oil, which was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so there's three in the court roundabout, three in the holy place, three in the most holy place. Um, and we're not going to have time to go through it much more, obviously. But these numbers become important. The threefoldness is repetitive and important. The nine, because there's nine vessels, is repetitive and important. And they symbolize the nine primary divine attributes, which are Yahweh. And they're divided up into three groups, those attributes. And that the principles of those attributes are manifested in the human physiology of your body. Um, and you can go into the third volume of the textbook and get a lot of details about that. So everything is going by this pattern. It's really worth spending time, energy, reading about, studying this. That's what I want to just encourage you to do so that you become familiar with it. Once you become familiar with it, it really empowers you to understand things about Yahweh's purpose. Now, with a few seconds that we've got left, and you can just tell me whenever we're out of time, uh, hit a couple of dimensions of vessels in the tabernacle. Now we're going to go from the court roundabout in or up into the most holy place. If you look at the gate, the gate is 30 feet wide. Then you look at the entrance into the holy place, the door. The, the door is three feet wide. Well, that, yeah, the door itself is three feet wide. That's correct. And so there's 30 feet going in and then three feet that would enter into the holy place where the priest did the ministry uh, in that holy place. This is one of a couple of symbols in the tabernacle showing that Yahshua was in the world for about 30 years, 30 feet of the gate. The court roundabout is like the earth plane. And he's there about 30 years before he goes into his ministry or starts dealing in the holy things of the gospel. And then he's in the gospel for a full three years, three and a half years total. Okay, so that's like the three feet uh, of the door. 30 feet of the gate, 
plus three feet of the doors, 33, Yahshua is in the world 30 and three years, okay? You go to the altar of sacrifice there. That altar of sacrifice is 90 inches on a side, okay? So it's uh, seven and a half feet or five cubits, if you will, okay? And that means that uh, the whole thing ends up being... Um, 360 inches all the way around or 30 feet and um the well again that's another 30 you can use the 30 and then that would mean that it's three and three quarters feet from the edge of the altar to the very center of the altar where the sacrifice is laid and the sacrifice is laid on wood on the grating which is a cross grating uh on the and and that's wood and the sacrifice was laid there in the center of the altar yashua fulfills that he goes around the world like the priest would go around the altar he did it for 30 years the priest did it for 30 feet then yashua goes into his ministry he's in his ministry for three and actually about three and three quarters years okay and then we i can show you with the months how it would be like three years ten months three and three quarters years, and then he is the sacrifice that's laid on the wood of the cross, and this wood of the sacrifice, the sacrifice is laid on the wood, and the wood is laid on the cross grating of the altar. Okay, so that's a quick intro to some of this. There's a lot more that we did in those three classes. You can find them and things online if that's helpful. I hope this is at least encouragement to study the tabernacle pattern and learn more. Thank you. Praise Yahshua. Thank you, Dr. Welsh. And for our third speaker this afternoon, we'll call on the Dean of our Oceanside, California class, Dr. Dennis Volpe. Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome everybody to tonight's class. I thought it was a very informative class. Uh, many uh, basic things that we first learn when we come into this class and uh, both speakers did a marvelous job of laying out how this purpose of Yahweh is lined up according to a pattern. Now, I'm going to talk, I'm going to take, go right off of this tabernacle to jump into our uh, uh, scripture reading from tonight. And what I want to do is I want to talk about the tabernacle in terms of the functioning. Now, the tabernacle has two aspects. It has the structure, which Terry spent a lot of time explaining that structure, but it also has function, which Terry did mention some of those things as well, and so does Cherie. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the function of the tabernacle in terms of Yahweh's purpose. Now, first thing, I'm going to do this quick because I want to lead into something. Now, this tabernacle, as it was explained to you, represents three states, pure spirit, incorporeal and corporeal. Now everything begins in the most holy place. Now we also know that when they constructed the tabernacle, the first thing that was built or vessel was the Ark of the Covenant. When a child is conceived, the first uh, organ that is being formed is the brain. Now everything starts in the most holy place and there are two aspects because what we have how Yahweh's purpose is operating is a round trip principle. 
Now we start in the most holy place and we're going to come down. Now the coming down comes down here as you're facing the tabernacle on the left side. And of course we come all the way down to the court roundabout, passing from one state to the next. And then we have an ascension going back up on the right side into the holy place, back to the most, most holy place. Now in the descension phase of the pattern or the purpose, Yahweh is divesting himself as he comes down of his glory. Now when he was in that state that we call pure spirit, Dr. Kinley referred to that state as being a state of ontological perfection. And that when Yahweh took on shape and form right within himself, I'm going to skip real quick and then come back. I want to go to the Moses chart here to illustrate. When Yahweh comes out of this state and takes on this shape that we call Elohim, this Eloistic form, which is an incorporeal being or a superincorporeal being. I mean, when Yahweh took on that shape and form, it was a superincorporeal form. Now, that form, although superincorporeal and, of course, very glorious, pales in comparison to the glory of Yahweh in the state of pure spirit. And Doc talked about that when Yahweh took on that shape, he, he, uh, uh, that that was a crucifixion because he had to come out of a state of uh, ontological perfection and demonstrate himself and manifest himself in a lesser state in order that he might make himself understandable to his creatures. And so since the creatures that he created, Yahweh Elam created, which was according to Yahweh's uh, purpose that he masterminded, we have angelic creatures and we have physical creatures or mankind. And what we know is that Yahweh is breaking himself down. He's going to take on that incorporeal form. The angels will be made in an incorporeal uh, uh, realm, if you will. I'll put it that way, within, with a body that is not what we would call a mortal body. And then we also have Yahweh coming on down further into a physical form that we know he was walking in the body of Yahshua the Messiah. And he took on a fleshly form, which was, uh, he allowed himself here to be subject to mortal death. Now, Dr. Kinley said that when Yahweh took on shape and form within himself, and he talked about how that that was a crucifixion because he divested himself of that great glory, he said, you can appreciate the sacrifice that Yahweh made coming from this state of pure spirit into the incorporeal because you don't have a, a, an idea or any way to gauge how glorious and how wonderful this state of pure spirit is. And therefore, Yahweh did this, and the reason why he took on a lesser form of himself was to demonstrate his great love and kindness and mercy to the creatures that he is uh, going to call unto glory. Now, what we have to have, though, in order to appreciate what Yahweh did even right from the beginning, he then took on an even lesser state, divesting himself of the superincorporeal and incorporeal form to take on the form of a man. Or as Paul said, he took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, 
What was in this body of Yahweh Elohim were the divine attributes. And those divine attributes represent the glory of what spirit really is. And yet, even though he divested himself of this so-called uh, state of ontological perfection, his nature, which would be demonstrated through this form, is going to show forth the glory of Yahweh in part. And then when he took off this body and came down further into this physical body, no longer having a body that is superincorporeal, the divine nature was also working in this body, and that divine nature again is the glory of Yahweh. So Yahweh is glorified, and, and what he's doing is he's showing forth as he breaks himself down further and further, demonstrates himself, try, uh, I, I use the word trying, that's a wrong choice of words, making himself simpler to follow and understand. Now, that is him demonstrating his great nature. Now, in the purpose, I want to go over here for a minute and pull up the uh, ages chart. Now, in this chart, when we look at the purpose starting, the first, second, and third age, no creature, angel, man, Moses, Noah, none of them knew the purpose of Yahweh. It was hidden in a mystery. Now, what Yahweh was doing on the downward, as it said, I use the example of the uh, descension, or how, what's the term I use, as he's coming on down, as he's descending. That is him taking off glory and setting up all of the elements by manifestation of what his purpose is. And those manifestations and occurrences like the what happened in the Garden of Eden and Noah's flood and Abraham and Moses and all of that was a type, shadow, and allegory of something spiritual. And it was not revealed back here in any one of these first three ages, what Yahweh's spiritual reality was. Now, what I want you to know is this. He sets it up here without revealing the essence or spiritual reality of what these things point to. And we read about that over in Peter, and I'm not going to have you get it because I don't have time to drag it all out. But Peter talks about how that the prophets... Uh, when they prophesied and wrote what they wrote, that they tried to go in and examine those things and tried to ascertain what these things really meant. And Peter says it was not given to them then to know, I'm putting it in my words, they were ministering unto us, meaning they were setting up what Yahweh had, and he said which things the angels desired to look into, which means they didn't know either. It's not till Yahshua comes in and is manifested in the physical creation or in the flesh that he's going to fulfill all of these natural physical type shadows and allegories and begin then on the day of Pentecost, which is the new age starting, that, that be, is the beginning of revelation, of the revealing of the spiritual reality of what these things were all pointing to. And the next three ages that we're, we're talking about, the fourth, fifth, and sixth age, are all, ladies and gentlemen, him opening up to us the, uh, if you will, the reality of his purpose and plan. And we are by, uh, let's say, 
I, I hate to use the word incrementally, as Doc said, we're getting it piecemeal. We're getting these things opened up to us that he saw instantaneously, uh, that he saw and had revealed to him instantaneously in his vision and revelation. Now, when we talk about there are three heavens, and I like the way Terry ex explained that because it's very simple. Those are you progressing in conscious realization through revelation of how Yahweh actually is and truthfully exists and how you are one with him, how you are Yahweh in part operating in the purpose that he has set up for all of us to come into. And so what I'm showing you is, I'm showing you that this is following the, the, the tabernacle. I know we don't have the tabernacle on this particular chart, but I want to go back over here and show you the coming down phase is the setup. The ascension phase is the revelation, coming back to glory. This is taking off glory. This is putting it back on one as we ascend further and further back, headed towards that state of pure spirit. Now, all of it, can be summarized in one word, and that is love. Because the fact that Yahweh set the purpose up to begin with is because of his great love, he wanted to bring forth offspring or creatures that he could make himself known to his creatures. In part, we know that no one, no one can understand the totality of Yahweh because Yahweh in that state, there is no measure of him. There is no beginning or ending or uh, quantified amounts of intelligence or wisdom. It is in infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge. But Yahweh wanting to make himself known and to open up to us his great divine nature and his attributes, which are spirit, is demonstrating his mercy, his kindness, and his love to his creatures. Now, the tabernacle, when it was set up, we know, uh, back over here, that when the people were, uh, the law was spoken in from on top of Mount Sinai, and the people were instructed and, and were told that uh, these laws were punishable by death if you transgressed them. Now, we also understand that the transgression by death, the, trans, the transgression of death is, as it says in Leviticus, it talks about that the soul that sinneth shall die. So we talk, we know it's a, it's a soul death that we're referring to. And with uh, Adam back here in the Garden of Eden, when he ate the fruit, and Yahweh said, in the day you, you eat thereof, you will surely die. Now, if you're looking at that from a natural standpoint, we know that Adam lived for 930 years, a far cry from a day. But Dr. Kinley was quick to point out that Adam died the moment he partook of that fruit. The death was of his soul, not his physical body. The physical body manifested that 930 years later. But he, he died within his soul. He had a state of condemnation because of his disobedience. And that had to be atoned for. So Yahweh sets that up in the purpose. That wasn't by chance. That wasn't happenstance that he partook of that fruit. Yahweh purposed that so that it would necessitate that a sacrifice and a redeemer would make atonement and restore them back unto life. This was all set up right from the beginning. Now, all right, let's go back over here. So what I want you to see, when we're looking at the tabernacle, we know that when Yahweh, okay, going back here, when Yahweh gave them those, those laws 
and they were punishable by death, Yahweh, while Moses was up in the mountain, was revealing to Moses how to build the tabernacle, and we know that the days of creation came in according to it. But this tabernacle here was shown to Moses, and we know that this tabernacle was a structure or a vessel that represents, as it were, an atonement for sins or a forgiveness of sins and a restoration of a way you could be restored from a spiritual death back to a state of spiritual life. So the tabernacle really is a demonstration from start to finish of Yahweh's great love, kindness, and mercy. That's why when he appears here in the form of Elohim, it's got to be on a mercy seat, and it's got to be witnessed by two witnesses. Now, what we have to know is this. This is the other thing that's important for us to bear into mind, that Elohim transformed into this tabernacle on top of Mount Sinai when he showed it to Moses in the vision. This was an intangible tabernacle, which means the tabernacle was not physical. Moses saw a, I'll have to say it like this, although I don't mean it uh, quite as poignant as I'm going to say it, that this is an incorporeal tabernacle, meaning it was not physical yet. Now, what he did is that we know that the tabernacle, when Elohim took on shape and form and then back into himself, uh, or he took on shape and form and then, then transformed into this tabernacle, then back into himself, he was demonstrating that the tabernacle was a figure of him. Now, if Elohim then transforms into the tabernacle, and we find out a little bit later in the story that the tabernacle then has to be constructed in the wilderness of Sinai. Yahweh Elohim commands Moses to have this tabernacle built here in the wilderness. Now here's what happens. If we look at this tabernacle as being an intangible, incorporeal tabernacle, and we see that it has to be made physical, in other words, it has to take on a physical form, and we know the tabernacle on the outside had no comeliness about it. For all we know, there was these old badger skins and uh, bars and pillars and boards. And even the vessels in the court roundabout were brass, which means they were subject to tarnishing. Now, when something tarnishes, it loses its luster, which means its ability to translate or transmit, trans, uh, is the word I'm after, to transmit light. Now, behind the veils, which is hidden to the average person out here, and the people couldn't look in past this veil and see the structure that lied in the holy place and most holy place. Only the priests could go in here, the high priest and the two low priests. Now, these vessels all in these two compartments are made from gold. Gold is not only a what we call a precious metal, but it also does not tarnish it does not lose its ability to transmit light. Now, you know that people have gone on treasure hunts, gold hunts, where they go to these ships that were sunk hundreds of years ago, and they find the ship, and they find the gold, they bring it up, and that gold is as good as it was, uh, you know, after they wipe it off and all that. It's as good as it was when the, from the time that the, the, the ship actually went down. So this gold represents eternal glory. And what we find out is the only way that that can be seen by anybody, you've got to get past the veil. And, and that's what 
uh, Terry was talking about, these veils separate the glory of the holy place and then cover the glory of the most holy place. Now, this one was a three-foot uh, door here in the, into the holy place. The most holy place didn't have a door. Not in the sense that there was like a door structure, because he it was a solid sheet here. And this sheet had to be removed. It had to be, uh, as I say, uh, 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 split from top to bottom. And we know that this veil eventually would be removed after Yahshua's death, burial, and resurrection. It was, it was split in two. So that one could then be in the holy place and pre penetrate the most holy place. Now, I'm throwing a lot of this out because I'm trying to show you that the, uh, the descension is not yet setting up, it's setting up the, the, the witnesses for salvation, but salvation occurs on the ascension and the returning back into the most holy place, penetrating past the veil, and then having the vision, which also can represent a revelation of Yahweh Elohim or Yahshua. So the tabernacle, every part of it shows forth the kindness and mercy of Yahweh to forgive sin and Yahshua talked about in his ministry that he was given power to forgive sin. Now, nobody has the power to forgive sin. In the Catholic Church, they told us that the priest has the power to uh, uh, dissolve your sins, and you had to go to confession, and the priest gave you absolution. Listen, the only one that can forgive sin is Yahshua the Messiah. He has been given that power. Now, I'm saying all this because this whole structure really, when it boils down to, is a structure demonstrating divine love. That's what it's doing. Now, I'm, I'm looking at my time, so I'm rushing through things because I have a, whole, a lot more I could have worked with, but I want to do this. I want to go back over to our scripture reading, and I want to talk about this because this scripture is very important. Now, let me say this to set it up. They came to Yahshua, the Pharisees, and they wanted to know what was the greatest commandment back there in the writings of Moses. And Yahshua said that the greatest commandment is that thou shalt love Yahweh with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these, all of the law and the prophets hang. Now, here's what we know. We know that the first covenant was going to be done away with. That Yahweh had promised that he was going to set up a new covenant over there in Jeremiah and so on and so forth. He's going to set up a new covenant. Now, that new covenant wouldn't be according to the old covenant. In other words, you're not going to bring an animal sacrifice to a physical building now where they offered it up and take the physical blood and bring it up into the most. That was all finished. Because it all now is being done in a spiritual atonement that go, is going on now since the day of Pentecost. Everything is spirit now, but we're looking at the manifestations back there to understand what principles Yahweh is demonstrating through the operation and structure of the tabernacle. Now, what I want to do is I want you to go to, uh, all right, I can't read the whole thing, so i got to cut down through. He, first of all, I'm going to just say this. He talks about uh, you've got to become humble like a little child to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And because they want to know who is greater in the kingdom of heaven. And then he talks about how that there would be offenses. And these offenses must come. Now, 
He's setting this up because what's going to happen is we understand that the mystery of iniquity is doing everything in his power to offend each and every one of us and to get us to offend one another. Because what his job is to try to stop the power of love to come into effect or the power of spiritual divine love to come into effect because we know that that is part of the new covenant. It is part of the new heart that is given to you under this covenant now. Now, what I want you to see is this. I want you to see that in this, in this uh, uh, particular scripture, he's talking about being offended. And he's talking about anybody that goes after one of these little ones. Now, oftentimes we think the little ones mean, you know, a little child. And yes, the childs are innocent and they have an age of accountability and they're innocant and not charged or, or uh, with sin until they reach that age of accountability. And that, uh, now, what I want you to know, though, is that when you come into class, we often refer to new people as babes. Now, we don't mean they're physically a baby. What we mean is their understanding is yet not matured, that they don't know and understand the, uh, many of the things that we have come to learn as we grow in our knowledge of this teaching, and we have to take them right back to utter simplicity, something they can digest, just like a baby when it's born. Its digestive system has to develop. You just don't start feeding babies uh, steak and potatoes. They have to have, first they have the mother's milk. We know that the mother's milk is Yahweh's way of providing the perfect, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, food for the baby's digestive system. And as the child's di digestive system begins to mature, we can start introducing them to uh, other aspects, things that are easy to digest for a baby. And then eventually they're able to bear things like meat and so on and so forth. Now, we... Lay down our lives for people when they first come in here. We try to take them right back to the first things that we were all taught. But we also know that the devil is going to come in here and try to snatch away whatever he can that's sown in the hearts of these people. And so Yash was telling them that it's going to happen, and anybody that offends one of these uh, children, it'd be better for them to be drowned in the sea with a millstone around their neck. Now, I want to go down here because I, I'm looking at my time. i got 10 minutes here. I want to go down to, uh, all right, let's start at 11. I will read that. We'll probably skip down even more, but keep going. Read 11. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Now, Yahshua didn't come to save the righteous. Be assured of this one thing, everyone, brethren, that if you're in this teaching and you were called out of the darkness, it's because you weren't righteous. Not because you did something righteous and therefore earned a calling. It doesn't work that way. Yahshua came to deliver us from the power of darkness and he came to save those that are lost. And every one of us were lost before we came into this knowledge and understanding. And that's what we have to understand. You don't get out of this situation that you were in when you first were born into the world and develop your carnal mind, your pride, and your arrogance. None of that you're going to overcome yourself. You need a, a Savior to cause you to be converted and become a new creature in Him, and you can't do it of your own. Now, every one of us are called, 
And he came, said he came to save sinners. And that's what we are. And what we have to, Paul said this. He said that uh, over there, he said, this saying is worthy of all acceptation, that Yahshua came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul recognized that he had no rights to receive that vision and revelation. He didn't earn it. He knew that Yahshua's mercy and kindness towards him uh, was, was, was manifested when he called him and caught him up and gave him a vision and then a subsequent revelation to that. Now, uh, so uh, he came to save, then he talks the parable about the lost sheep. And we know there's more joy in heaven over one lost sheep being brought back to the fold than there are uh, in heaven of joy of 99 righteous. Okay, so I want to cut down. And then he talks about if your brother sin against you or shall trespass, that's an offense. This is how you handle it. You go to them and you sit and talk about it with an attitude of reconciliation, not stone throwing. And you're wrong and I'm all right. We have to learn how to be, uh, uh, if you will, uh, manifest that divine love to want to reconcile and get the thing right. And, and that's what's important. So he talks about how you go to your brother. If he won't hear you, you go with two witnesses. They won't hear you. They can bring him up in front of the congregation and so on. Now, what I want to do is I want to go down here. Boy, my time is eating up. I want to go down here. Go down to 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Master, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? He says, well, listen, how many times do I got to forgive somebody that does something wrong against me? Seven times? He acted like seven was like the golden number. And of course, nobody could ever uh, then forgive somebody an eighth time. So what, I got to do it seven times? And here's what Yahshua says, read. Yahshua saith unto him, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. That's 490. So in other words, I want you to forgive him 490 times. Now I want you to know that he wasn't literally saying you should count them. And once they hit 490, that's the end of forgiveness. He's just trying to show this big number that you should forgive your brother whenever, whenever your brother you know, comes to you and asks for your forgiveness and asks you to, uh, you know, uh, give him another chance. We often say it like that. But he said that, uh, you know, I, it, my mind reminds me, there was a time back in the 70s that there was somebody that was in class, started talking against Dr. Kinley and got all these other people, uh, so a bunch of people uh, on his so-called a thing about Dr. Kinley, and they left class. And so what happened is this person by and by came back and went up to see Dr. Kinley at his apartment and apologized to him and asked him, you know, to forgive him or that, you know, for what he did. Dr. Kinley went down to class in Los Angeles and got on the floor. And he said, now, Dr. Such-and-Such -such came to me, and I'm not going to tell you his name. You might already know, but I'm not going to mention it. He said, Dr. Such-and-Such -such came to me, and he apologized and told me he was sorry. He turned to the congregation. He said, now, you're going to have to forgive him or go to the lake. That's what he said. 
And here's what Yash was saying. He said seven times, 70 times, uh, uh, 490 times, you're going to have to forgive your brother, right? Now, uh, where do we leave off? What verse was that? 23, uh, we're on. All right, 23. Let me get down here. Okay. Now, okay. Now, start. keep reading at 24. And, well, we didn't read 23 yet. Therefore, is okay. the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, here comes this servant that owes him a lot of talents or a lot, I'll say a lot of money. I'll put it like that. Read. But for as much as he had nothing with which to pay, his master commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Go ahead. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Read. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him his debt. Now here comes that master that took compassion upon the servant and wiped out his whole debt. Because he felt compassion, he felt sorry for this person, and he was demonstrating mercy and kindness. Read. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. Mm -hmm. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Mm -hmm. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Mm -hmm. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their master all that was done. Now they went back to tell the king. This is what he did. Same exact circumstance of what happened between the guy and the king. Now he's with his fellow servant and the king forgave him. And then this guy can't forgive his fellow servant. Read. Then his master, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou besought me. Mm -hmm. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Read. And his master was angry and delivered him uh, to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now listen, the master rescinded his forgiveness on that servant because he didn't do the same thing to his fellow servant. Now, this is what Yahshua told the apostles. In the uh, 15th chapter, I believe it is. I think it's the 15th chapter of John. You can check it. It's either the 15th, 16th chapter. And he says this, No new commandment give I to you but this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we often think that love is a, an emotional thing where we feel the strong liking to somebody and we call it love. But now, you know something? We have to understand that love is a divine attribute. It's not just a feeling that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's, a, it's an aspect of the nature of Yahweh. And that love that Yahshua manifested towards all of those apostles that were, let's face reality, they were still yet carnal. And they were not perfect. Now, you know what happened with Peter. Peter denied Yahshua three times. And yet Yahshua forgave him for that denial. Now, this guy didn't want to forgive his fellow servants, so read the last verse. 
35, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother that trespasses. Now that's the bottom line. If you want to lose your, your forgiveness from Yahshua the Messiah, just don't forgive your, your brethren when they wrong you or when they do something that offends you. Just say, nope, I'm, I'm going to be hard about this because I don't like that person and I don't feel like I, I need, they did me wrong and blah, 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 and you're not going to let it go. Well, expect when you stand before Yahshua that he now has called you a wicked one and retaken his forgiveness of you away from the things that you uh, had when you walked in this room or even continue, whatever. My point is that this is all part of the new covenant. And the tabernacle demonstrates that Yahweh forgave the people that all said, we will keep this covenant. We'll keep whatever you tell us to do, we're going to do it. Right there at Mount Sinai. And every one of them broke the word. And yet Yahweh provided a provision for them to be forgiven and to be reconciled and brought back. Now, if we have that Holy Spirit in us, and this is what Dr. Kinley said. Somebody said, Doc... How do you know when you have the Holy Spirit? He said, when you love the brethren. Because to love one another, we're all imperfect. And to love one another is divine. You can't manifest that divine love towards your brother without the Holy Spirit. But when it comes forth in you to forgive, to feel compassion on somebody and let it go, that shows that shows that the Holy Spirit is in you. And Yahshua said to the apostles, love one another and they will know you are my disciples because of that love towards each other. And he told the apostles to love one another. And I just want you to know it's a requirement of us under this covenant. It's not a suggestion. If you don't do it, you will lose your soul. And that's the reality of it. And I just want you to know that Yahshua is showing us the way. He's not expecting you to do something that you can't understand. You just got to get over yourself and let go of your hard, hard heart and your anger and all of the things that you use to justify hating somebody or to refuse to forgive them. And if you don't get over that, then most likely the devil is having a May Day with you. And you need, if you need, you come to class and, 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 and listen to these things and let those things, and if you need to get together with somebody you know in this teaching that you feel confident that they, you know, they see something and understand it uh, and ask them uh, to give you encouragement, I guarantee you, Yahshua will not let you down. He will keep you strong in this teaching and you will know you're under the new covenant because we love one another. I hope that made some sense to you because we're in a fight of our lives, ladies and gentlemen. The devil is beating up on everyone right now. And we want, we want to use one another together in unity to overcome that mystery of iniquity. And Dr. Kinley said this. He said, now, if you can't get along now, he said, how are you going to get along together through the rest of eternity? He said, you're going to need one another in order to get through this thing. And I believe it. So with that, I say peace to all the brethren, and I hope that you were edified. I know this was a wonderful class tonight. I thought the speakers all did a nice job. I'm going to turn it back to the moderator. Peace in Yahshua to all my brethren. Thank you, Dr. Volpe. We'd like to thank everybody who joined us today in our Zoom class. 
And we'd also like to thank those who have viewed us on YouTube. We hold our Zoom class every Saturday from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific time. At this time, I'd like to ask the class to stay muted until the live stream has ended. We'll now be dismissed by the doxology, which is taken from the last two verses of the book of Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise Elohim, our Savior, through Yahshua the Messiah, our Sovereign, belong glory and majesty, dominion and power, both before all time and now and ever. Let us all say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah.